Parenting is often lived in the extremes. It's either great joy or chaotic overwhelm. In one moment you're nailing it and the next you're losing your cool. I want to help you find your way to the messy middle, to a place of balance. You see, balance is a verb, not a state of being. It is a thing you do, not a thing you are. It is an action, a process, a series of micro-corrections that you make each and every day to keep yourself feeling centered. We are never truly balanced. We are engaged in the process of balancing. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Froyan, and this is the Balanced Parent Podcast, where overwhelmed, stressed out, and disconnected parents go to find tools, mindset shifts, and practices to help them stop yelling at the people they love and start connecting on a deeper level, all delivered with heaping doses of grace and compassion. Join me in conversations that will help you get clear on your goals and values and start showing up in your parenting, your relationships, your life with open-hearted authenticity and balance. Let's go. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Balanced Parent Podcast. This is Dr. Laura Froyan, and I'm so excited about this guest I have with you today. Today, we're going to be talking with Dr. Steve Hodges, who is the country's leading authority on bedwetting, potty training, and childhood constipation. He is the person I send all of my clients to who are having difficulties in those areas with their kids. His information is helping parents all over the world help their kids and the parents have kind of a better relationship, a better understanding of what's going on for kids. And yeah, so I'm so excited to have him. Dr. Hodges, thank you so much for being here with us. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Awesome. Thank, no, thanks so much for having me and taking time to talk about this topic because it does get ignored a lot. I'm a pediatric urologist at Wake Forest University School of Medicine, which is in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And as you may know, urologists tend to be uh, surgeons or primarily surgeons in our trade. So most of my practice comes with surgery, but about half the patients that come in have a voiding complaint. And in my practice, I was seeing these voiding complaints primarily, whereas a lot of other practices, there's nurse practitioners or physician extenders like PAs that, that run a traditional protocol it's been established for past maybe 20, 30 years. And when I was seeing these patients on my own, I was noticing that I was having some difficulty getting good results, even though I was following traditional guidelines. And so that led to some research and some new findings that, as we'll see, weren't so new, but maybe forgotten about what causes these accidents, what causes problems with potty training or bedwetting or even urinary tract infections. And that led to a lot of research. And that was about 10 years ago when we've been working at it since. It's been a lot of fun and met a lot of people and then helped a lot of kids, hopefully. Oh, you definitely have helped lots of kids. I have a Facebook group. The folks are very excited to know that they'd be able to hear from you directly on this podcast. But you've also helped me personally with one of my own kiddos. Oh, who, yeah, she asked me not to speak specifically about her story. And I want to always be respectful of her, but you helped us a lot. So tell us a little bit about the topic that you've helped me most on coming to understand that oftentimes when kids are having accidents or having difficulty with going to the bathroom, that there's a few things that are, I don't know, that kind of get that started. And one of them is starting potty training too early. So what is the right age to start potty learning? Yeah, this is kind of a button topic because 
a lot of almost religious <laughs> type zealotry attached to potty training. I mean, some people are convinced, you know, early is better. There's a lot of elimination communication uh, followers that like the fact that you can use less diapers and it's potential to train children early. And uh, some people like boot camp approaches. What our data shows is that the healthiest way for a child to eliminate is without hindrance, right? So freely. And that in modern society, that means a diaper, basically, because basically elimination communication folks kind of hover around the child and put them over the toilet when they need to go. But you're hoping you catch every episode. And they're trying to mimic, you know, a, a kind of traditional human boarding patterns because there were no diapers thousands of years ago. And my challenge is they were also, you know, weren't living like we're living now thousands of years ago either. So you didn't have to wear clothes and go to school and stuff. So the only way to recreate kind of a primitive way of elimination in infants is to let them go whenever they want in a in diaper. Because you can train any age child, as has been proven as young as six months, I think, in some literature, to be potty trained specifically. But that does not mean that you've taught them how important it is to go when they feel the urge and, and to eliminate completely. And one of the, I guess, downsides to humans being so smart in our big brains is that we figured out that you can put off peeing and pooping. And when kids do that, they do it, it just becomes a habit. And when they get the urge to go, they just said, you know what, I don't want to go to the bathroom. I don't want to wet my pants. I'm just going to hold it in. And that leads to all these problems. And the simplest example I can give you to drive this home is that when little girls show up in my office with recurrent UTIs or urinary tract infections, it's always immediately during or right after training. Immediately. It's so typical. I, I can almost set my clock by it. It's so, it's so typical. And so that's one factor that I think helps illustrate why kids start to hold more. So when I figured that out, I was pretty dogmatic that kids should train, you know, after three, because it seems to me, at least in my practice, that after three, you can talk to them, they can get dressed, they can get undressed and so forth. And once they're much past four, it gets a little awkward. They're older. Most of their friends are trained. So three and a half is usually a good age. I've become less dogmatic because what's become clear to me is that you can train whenever you want if your genes are okay. If you follow me, you know, it's like one of those things like, how do you measure risk factor and genetic risk? If your family had a lot of bedwetting in it and your family had a lot of constipation in it, you train early, you're probably playing with fire. If you had no history of any of those problems, you might get away with it, you know, if you train early. But I don't think it's worth the risk. And I think it's better for the kids just to go slow with it and uh, train them when they're old enough to discuss it and know what's going on and know the harms of holding, which is key. Okay. So how do you know when a child is ready? Like, how do you tell? Yeah, I think too much thought is like put on potty training, like as a process, whereas the listeners may know Dr. O'Regan, who's the guy that did the original research on all this topic in the 80s. It was kind of forgotten and then we rediscovered. But he would talk to me when I would talk to him about this process and say, you know, how do you make your child go to sleep, right? You don't, you set the stage for it and then they go to sleep, but you don't make them sleep. It's a physiologic process. You know, how do you make your child crawl or walk? You make sure they have the right environment and they're growing, being fed, but you don't actually make them do that. That's a physiologic process. He said toilet training is the same thing. It's something that happens automatically once they're old enough and can. So the biggest sabotage for the kids we see is that they were constipated and no one knew. And so they can't control their bowels. Or, but assuming that their bowels are functioning normally, they will potty train on their own between three and three and a half. My approach is you just put the potty out, see if they want to go pee in the potty. And they probably will. They can control it. And then they're out of it. Now, we do have the issue with some kids where they get so comfortable going in full up. Another kind of just idiosyncrasy of human human babies is that they, they may want to go in full up forever. And that's not going to be forever. I know it freaks parents out. But eventually... The one good use of peer pressure is that everyone else in their class is going to be potty trained. And as long as they can control it, they'll do it. The big problem we have with these kids that if they're forced to go early, they get constipated, then they can't control their bladder and they can't get out of diapers even if they want to. So I would much rather have a kid that's preferring to pee and poop in a diaper 
but can control it as opposed to one that was forced out of a diaper and now can't control it. Okay. So the first part is easier to fix. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about this relationship between constipation and accidents. So yes, it's a long story. I don't know how much to get into it with you, but over 30 years ago, maybe 40 years ago, there was a thought that these kids would come in with accidents and they thought that they had an anatomic blockage in their urethra, right? So they were, because they'd done some studies and when they saw these children urinate, there seemed to be a narrowing in where they were, they urinated. So they're like, oh, they have a blockage. So a lot of the parents of the children I see, maybe grandparents now, because I'm getting older, <laughs> would have had their bladder necks stretched for accidents. You may have heard of that before. The urologist would go in there and just put dilators in and you stretch your urethra. And anecdotally, this was actually pretty effective. And we can talk why if you'd like. But basically stretched out the urethra and they, over time, started peeing normally and they kind of outgrew these problems. There was some debate as to whether how much you should dilate these kids and how often some kids had some side effects. And so it kind of fell out of favor when they started noticing that when they scoped these kids, there was no actual blockage. Mm -hmm. The urethra looked normal. So then the 80s and 90s, I said, oh, wow, this is not an actual blockage. It's they're squeezing their sphincter. They're doing a Kegel basically while they're trying to pee. And so they said, okay, the new therapy is going to be to teach them not to do Kegels while you pee. And so biofeedback physical therapy became the new treatment. That combined with some laxatives to make sure they're pooping okay, maybe some bladder medicines, maybe peeing on a schedule. And that was a standard that I adopted and I learned and was using. But what I realized is that, you know, a lot of these kids weren't getting better as, as fast as I wanted. And some kids were seeing no side effects. And then when I read a lot of the data, found out that a lot of these sphincter dysinertia or this Kegel could be artifact. It could be hard to measure. And that's when I found Dr. Regan's work. And through a series of events, I said, you know what, I'm going to start looking uh, at the poop and I start doing x-rays on these kids. And so what happens in reality, we believe this, is, and if you've ever had a kid and you've had kids and all your listeners have, you know this, this is, makes the most sense. You have a kid, right? They're born. They're peeing and pooping fine. At some point, it's going to be weird to poop, right? It's going to hurt whether they started solids or after some antibiotics, or maybe they started milk. Even for one of mine, it was rice cereal. It gets firm in their brain. It's like, oh, that doesn't feel good. And they start holding. Mm -hmm. And so what's supposed to happen is a natural emptying, natural emptying leads to a kind of a traffic jam at the end of the colon. And the rectum or the end of the colon fills up. Now, the rectum is what allows you to know if you need to poop. And so if it's always full, you lose that sensation. So you start living with poop there. And the problem is the nerves that go from the bladder to the spinal cord and even the brain that control voiding go around that anatomic structure. And they get stretched, stimulated, and it makes the brain think you got to pee and starts voiding on its own. So basically, the wiring to control the bladder is sabotaged by the rectum and makes hiccup-like patterns happen. So you're just sitting there and all of a sudden, an unavoidable urge. So that's why it always appears like these kids can't get to the bathroom on time or waited too long because the urge hits them like that, or that they sleep too deeply because they don't wake up to pee. But in reality, this urge is hitting so rapidly that even you or I would not be able to control it if we had that same urge. That makes so much sense to me. And I really appreciate you laying it out so clearly. I, when parents come to me and they say that this is happening for their kids, having learned from you, I always go to looking at constipation. And the number one thing that they say back to me when I send them your yeah. links, that they tell me like, well, my kid goes poop every day. They're not yeah. constipated. So can you talk about that too? Yeah. And that's a big sabotage of this whole field is simply semantics is what does constipation mean? So in our first book, we have a chapter entitled, Trust Me, Your Child's Constipated. And I think the terminology is fraught with trouble. So what does constipation mean to you or me? It means different things, right? It means different things to different doctors, to pediatricians, to radiologists. I have this argument with a lot of people. So what we mean by constipation is that your child is putting off pooping and so that too much poop is built up in the rectum so that they have a dilation. So what Dr. Regan used to call it is actually, is he'd say it's failure to completely empty the rectum 
or more scientifically, delayed sensation to balloon encephalation on anal rectal manometry. So what that means is <laughs> he knew this, he figured this out by treating his son for bedwetting. And what he, this guy was, is so brilliant, still alive, so brilliant that he figured out this poop issue was causing his son's bedwetting. And not only did he do that, he did it just from research, just from researching literature. And this was in the 80s. He goes, I'm going to figure this out. And he did an anal rectal manometry test, which is took a tube with a balloon on it, shoved it up his son's bottom in the hospital now and started blowing up a balloon. And we know at what volume that balloon, you should feel it. And his son didn't feel the balloon until it was three times normal size. So he's like, there you go. And in his brain, he knew, okay, this is what happened. He put off the pooping. He dilated the rectum. If I fix that, he'll stop wetting the bed. He took his son home, gave him enemas every night, and he stopped wetting the bed. And that was the start of this whole product. And, and his data is so solid. I mean, he basically measured bladder function in a bunch of kids, showed that they couldn't control the bladder, showed they also had this rectum problem, fixed the rectum problem then redid the bladder study and the studies were normal. It's like really amazing work. And so why it's gotten kind of short shift in, you know, history, I don't know. I guess, well, maybe I know because animals are weird and people don't like talking about poop, but it's a shame because it can help a lot of people. Yeah. Okay. So that's really helpful. And I think that is a good explanation. So for folks then who have maybe even older kids who maybe are pooping sometimes, you mentioned a book just in your answer. What is the name of your book? Yeah. So the main link is for the website, bedwettingandaccidents.com, which is really important. Our most up-to-date book is the Mop Book Anthology, which is a culmination of all our findings and all, because we've modified. It's really a cool, like we live in a cool time, other than the COVID and everything. We live <laughs> in a cool time with uh, social media where I have parents I can interact with, we can modify. And I've learned a lot from them and what works for them. It's almost like doing research in a large group of patients instantaneously with instantaneous feedback, you know, all over the world. And so the Mop Book Anthology was just recently published a new version, has all our best therapies for, you know, daytime pee accents, bedwetting, and even poop accents, as well as um, specific instruction for young children and uh, teens and tweens as well. So that's our most recent book on this topic. Awesome. Thank you so much. Okay. So I have this awesome community on Facebook where parents ask questions. And like I said, they're excited to be able to ask you a question. So I have one from one of them, if that's okay with you. Yeah, perfect. Please. Okay, cool. So this parent is working on potty learning and peeing in the potty is going great. But her child who's three and a half says that they are never going to go on the poop on the potty. You know, that they're never going to do it (laughs) and they'll only do it in a diaper. And this is not uncommon. I actually get this question a lot. Super Um, common. Yeah. And so, yeah. So what do we do as parents when we're in that circumstance when that's happening? And yeah, take it away. This is common. So, yeah. So if you have a child pooping regularly and they can control their bladder perfectly and the only thing sabotaging your success is getting the poop on the potty. This has been addressed on our website. And actually to give props to another book, which it goes into this deeply is the ins and outs of poop which is a good book. And he has a great strategy. So basically you say, okay, you want to poop in the potty? That's fine. I mean, in a pull-up, that's fine. You're going to poop in the pull-up every time. And so make sure that they're pooping regularly though. So, and the only way you'll know if their bowels are normal is if they have no bladder issues, right? They're not having pee accents and all. So you say, okay, first part of the deal is you're going to poop in the pull-up in the bathroom. That's the only thing. And so there's pooping in the pull-up in the bathroom. Okay, great. Fine. The next thing, okay, you're going to poop in the pull-up in the bathroom, sitting on the toilet. And so you basically slowly transition them because this withholding, I, I cannot tell you how common this is. And I have it even in my own family. I love telling the story. My oldest daughter would not go except in pull-up. And we said, you know, we'll give you this, we'll give you this, we'll give you this. And finally, I was like, okay, look, if you do this, I'll take you to Disney World. And she looked at me and said, that's okay. I'll pass. And so I knew it was a really strong, and you know, the interesting story for her is, I just kind of used a modified version of that technique where I said, I'll hold the pull-up 
underneath your bottom as you poop. I mean, the things we do for kids, right? How weird is that? When she pooped, I moved it, honestly, not on purpose, kind of by accident. And so she pooped in the toilet and then she saw it. She literally turned to me and said, oh, I did it. Like it was something flipped in her brain. And that's what they go through. And she never pooped in the pool again. So it's almost like they don't believe they can do it. Or anyway, they're not used to it. So eventually you go from pooping in a pull up in the bathroom to pooping in the pull up on the bathroom to taking off the pull up on the toilet. But some kids are so reluctant. In the book, you can see the reference. And this is the other book. That they have to cut a hole literally in the pull up. Have them poop in the toilet that way. And there was presents a case of a girl that would have to put the pull up on. This pull-up was never soiled. It was just a pull-up they had put on to make her poop on the toilet. By the end of a few weeks, it was like a belt, like a shredded belt. But she had to have that sense. So the main thing is to say, you know, don't rush it. I know it looks scary that, oh, my goodness, my kid's never going to, you know. I hate saying they're not going to be in diapers in college, but that's a reality. And if you look at a little bit longer time frame, all this is, is resolvable. It all takes care of itself. But that's how you slowly desensitize the process and, and get them pooping and it works very well. I love that. I think it's so smart to just go slowly, trust your kid. They'll do Keep it when Exactly. And just keep going. I just want to highlight for our listeners a few things. So what's key is to know if your child is like just going normally, not having any trouble with holding, not having any trouble with peeing, that it's all happening normally. And in that case, you can just trust and keep moving. But what if you do notice that there are maybe some pee accidents, for example, maybe they've been potty trained and all of a sudden you notice kind of every time they go to the potty, there's a little bit of pee in their underwear, like their underwear is just a little bit. Yeah. I don't like using any accents in the way, I mean, I'm not blaming a kid, but I don't like <laughs> overlooking them. You know what I mean? Like, I don't mind, I don't say, oh, they're just potty training. That's common. Accidents are accidents and they should be able to go straight to, you know, dry right away. So if they're having several signs, number one for pooping, hiding the poop, that's a big one. If they're pooping should be, I like it when it's just not even a big event, right? They're playing, maybe they pause for a second, they poop. And then they, I always mention this to my patients, we went horseback riding once with my kids and those horses were pooping the whole ride. They never even like thought about it while they're walking. And then we have kids that if they have to poop, you know, if they go in a closet and turn off all the lights and sit in a stressful position for hours. So you should be on something. And again, this comes down to most kids needing laxatives, honestly, because humans just withhold so much. So I think almost every kid needs something if they have the genetics that predisposes them to constipation, something to keep the poop soft, whether it be Miralax or whatever, but it usually you need something and they should be pooping freely. Uh, they should, you know, not that they don't even notice it, but they should pause, do it, but there should be no drama really. It should be like stressful. Mm-hmm. Once they're doing that, that's a good sign. If they're having pee accidents, if it always looks like they're waiting for the last minute to pee. Now it's very easy. I do think kids put off pooping. I know they put off pooping. I don't think they put off peeing as much as we think. I think they get the urge but the urge comes on so quickly that it looks like they're waiting the last minute. Mm. I often tell parents of mine, you know, go home and hold your pee till you have an accident. And they're like, look at me funny, but it's impossible, right? You, because the urge becomes so overwhelming. Your brain drives you to the bathroom. And so I think kids are withholders, but not to the extent that we think. I think if they're always at the last minute, there's probably a bowel component. And I have a lot of evidence of that where kids were brought to my clinic or they pee last minute. They don't like to go to the bathroom. And when I fix their bowels, they pee completely normal. If you see any pee signs, even bedwetting, you know, I, I don't want to push the thing on bedwetting too much in young kids, but bedwetting is not normal. If they're peeing while they're unconscious. That's bladder overactivity. So peeing on themselves while awake, that's bladder overactivity. And that requires some bowel management to help resolve. Okay. It's going to make potty training much more difficult as well. Absolutely. So one of the things that I hear you saying is that kids do well when they can. And if it's seeming like they really, you know, are waiting too long, that this likely isn't a choice and it's a physiological thing that's going on. Very well put. And I do think that too many physicians, even well-meaning pediatricians, tell parents, oh, you know, they'll grow it. They're doing this on purpose. They're, mm-hmm. you know, when they want to be dry, they'll dry. They poop accents. They'll think, you know, I've never seen a kid purposely poop on themselves. Uh, honestly, I've never seen, I'm sure there's cases of it, but 
in these cases where poop is falling out, there is a real medical condition, a physiological reason, and they need help. Okay. I love that. That's so helpful. Can we talk just for one little second too about bedwetting and about kind of at what age it's happening? Like when, if it's happening at certain ages that when we should kind of start being concerned, start taking a look at something like constipation as a being related? Yeah, so it's going to be slightly controversial, but I think I've had the evidence to discuss this. So there in our textbooks, there is literature on infant voiding, okay, and sleep patterns. And the infants, newborns, they arouse to void, okay? So they arouse themselves, they void, and they go to sleep. And so the bladder grows from birth, and so it is very rare to actually urinate while you are unconscious, deep sleep. And so that is most likely in all cases, and I'm willing to say all cases, I'm sure there's exceptions, where there's some bladder overactivity. What gets tricky is, obviously, if you have an infant, they don't know what they're doing. So they're going to pee in their diaper, even if they are aroused. And at some point, you have a kid that's old enough to, you know, wake up and go to the bathroom. But between there's a lot, a lot of gray area. And I want to clarify this. I'm not saying that bedwetting is ever normal. I don't think it ever is. But it's hard to distinguish in young kids that may be in a crib when the voiding's happening, right? Because it may be when they're sleeping. It may be that they woke up and peed and they didn't, couldn't get out of the crib or whatever. And they don't care because they're two or three. So what we decided on is usually after potty training, about three or four, four specifically is when Dr. O'Regan fixed his son. They're old enough to go to the bathroom normally during the day. They should be able to be dry at night. And if they're not dry at night, if they're avoiding while asleep, which is typical bedwetting, then bladder overactivity is the primary cause and constipation is the primary cause of that. And literally, all the other purported causes, you can find literature disproving. The hormone issue that people talk about has really never been documented to be accurate. The sleep disorder is completely flipped. They showed that kids that with the bed actually don't sleep deeply. They sleep less deeply because their bladder is going haywire and they can't relax. So by fixing their constipation and bedwetting, you actually help them sleep better. So I think bedwetting in any child past potty training age is fixable and due to constipation. I think that that's so helpful. And so again, just to kind of reiterate for those listening, it's because that constipation is kind of making things back up. It starts dampening the signals that you would be getting. You know, it takes kind of uh, more signals and it kind of reroutes those signals to the urinating. Is that right? Like, I want to get the nerve piece of it right again. (laughs) Yeah, the best way to think of it is this, is that if you had a completely, okay, we can get into a lot of details, but there's a fetal (laughs) reflex, right? So we've all had babies that peed in diapers, right? That didn't know what they were doing. So they had no brain component to their peeing. There was just a reflex. It went from your bladder to your spinal cord of your bladder like that. So some kind of stretch happened and happened. And that's a reflex. At some point, the three or four, whenever, two, three or four, our brain became involved where the signal would go to our brain, we would become aware, and then we could control the pain. If you get enough stimulus down there from the stretching of the rectum, it could be from other causes, like maybe filling up your bladder too much with too much water, whatever, rapidly. That's when you have to pee more urgently, right? If you drink a lot of fluid. But if you have this rectal dilation, you can almost think linearly how much your rectum is stretching, how much overactivity is happening in the bladder. So as you're getting backed up, you're getting more and more bladder reactivity. So maybe okay. you can get to the bathroom while you're awake because you can feel it and run there. But when you're asleep, that reflex happens so quickly. It, it may be in that reflex that never even gets to your brain because mm-hmm. it, it started that. So then that's bedwetting. And that's why typically bedwetting is more common and the last thing to get better. In these. Then your rectum gets more dilated. All of a sudden the bladder starting to be overactive while you're awake even, and you can't overcome it with your conscience. So you're rushing to the bathroom last minute or you're peeing too frequently or too urgently. And then you get to the point where the rectum gets even more more dilated and you start peeing on yourself and you didn't even know it. Like literally these kids that pee on themselves while awake had no idea that they avoided. Like it never got to their brain. Mm -hmm. So they're in their wet clothes and parents are like, you know, why are they staying in wet clothes? And they had no idea they were even wet. The parents have to tell them. 
And then as that dilation gets even worse, poop accidents may happen where the poop is just so backed up, it starts falling out. It gets a little complicated because some people don't have the genes for the bladder issues to happen. So they just go straight to the poop accident. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole time no one knew what was going on until it was too bad. But that's the general progression in my most common patients, bedwetting to daywetting the poop accident. And then as we empty them out, it gets better in the reverse order. The poop accidents get better first, the daytime wetting gets better second. And the night wetting always lags a little bit. It's the hardest to get better because you have to have such a calm bladder that you can be unconscious and never pee on yourself. And that uh-huh. takes some work. Okay, that was so helpful. And I think it really highlights how little control kids have in this moment, how involuntary most of this process is, and why it's so important, if that's the case, to not engage in any parenting practices that might bring shame or blame or even like bribing, like why those things don't work in this. Yeah, and it is amazing how many pediatricians recommend, you know, oh, make them change their sheets or something or make them not wear diapers so they feel the wetness, all the stuff that implies that if they could just feel it, they would do better. And that and in this day and age, it's really everyone's so woke about every other topic in the world, but they call like politicians that are complaining bedwetting politicians and pediatricians recommend, you know, punishing kids for bedwetting and in terms of changing sheets, that's punishment. And so it's a shame. And and it, it is in a serious, serious note, it's one of the major causes of child abuse that, you know, I follow that those reports and there have been not I mean, one would be too many, but there are a handful of kids every year that are abused to the point of murder, which I don't know how else to put it, over this topic, which should be a never happen in society. And you don't hear a thing about it. Now, and I don't understand. I don't want anyone to be abused for anything. But to me, this topic is not at the public forefront as it should be that we, you know, we commonly talk about, oh, obviously, you shouldn't make your child feel bad if they have this opinion or that opinion. But then no one says, hey, you know, if your child's having accidents, make sure not to punish them. So stuff like this in this interview is great to get that word out. I appreciate it. Yeah, I can guarantee you in our community, we are absolutely talking about not using punishments or threats or even bribes, which because you know, if we think about the flip side of a bribe, it's withholding the bribe. You know, I, we struggle with like, what's good positive reinforcement, right? I talked to psychologists about like, you know, getting a kid to try to go. And I just, I don't know, you can, it's good to work towards goals and to praise goals. But I get it. I don't want to imply that they can control it either. Right. I think that that's what's so important is that like, this isn't volitional. And I would argue that for most kids, when they are doing a behavior that is really challenging, most kids do well when they can. Most kids don't want to be doing these things. They wouldn't choose to be doing these things. So I really appreciate that message. It's very much in line with what we do here. And I don't understand why accidents would be any different. You know, of course, these kids don't want to be having this happen to them. And, you know, it touches on another topic of this is kind of taboo in a weird way. So, like, I get a lot of pushback. I mean, not as much, I guess, as maybe you would think, but there's definite pushback against our treatment, right? So we have this kid with rectal dilation and you got to get the poop out. What's the most efficient way to do that? And for better or worse, the best way to do this is with an enema, honestly, because you have this big accumulation of poop at the end of the rectum. Their sphincter can only open up so much. And so you have to put some medicine right at the root cause of the problem, get it empty. I'm a physician, you know, so I'm kind of detached from all this stuff. So I, I just look at it as, you know, medical condition, treatment, you know, what's the most direct way. But, you know, you give it to a group of parents on the Internet, maybe it's like the worst thing they've ever heard of, right? Putting an up a child's bottom. And, and I do think, I always often think of this analogy, you can tell me if you think it's okay. Like if there were any other disease process, right? Like a, what we consider a real disease, like God forbid your child had diabetes or a malignancy or something horrible. Picture, picture the worst thing. And the doctor said, you know, if you give this child enemas every day, they'll get better it would be a no-brainer, right? We would totally do it. Totally do it. But for this problem, it seems like people don't accept it. And so 
that's another thing we struggle with. I'm not saying every kid needs an enema, but if you want to fix the problem, you know, fix it the best way you can. And sometimes the enema is the best way to do it. The idea of an enema or a suppository, it all seems very intimate and I can imagine hard to do with a child who's resisting. Do you have any tips for parents who are in the place where they're ready to start doing those things? Yeah, we have a whole handout uh, on our website, uh, bedwettingandaccents.com, about how to get your child to do an enema with a lot of pointers. But honestly, we have less trouble than you would think. I think there, there are always going to be a small percentage of children that it's just a no non-starter, right? And to some people, I get it. If it's just bedwetting and they're a young kid, then you don't want the treatment to be worse than the disease, right? Maybe you, you can take a slow approach. You Maybe you can say, you know what, we'll just do oral laxatives until they get there and we have a longer timeline. But once they start doing it, you know, as long as you do it with plenty of lubricant, do it the way we instruct, you know, for young kids, basically just have to put them over your lap and do it. But for older kids, you can talk them through it. They can do it themselves or you can show them how it's going to be done. The relief from these children in terms of either getting empty and feeling better or ability to control their bladder bowels is positive reinforcement. And they often are on board right away and do well. Yeah. And most of our kids do them. It's, it, it's interesting. Most parents are bothered initially by having to do them. And then they're like, oh, geez, how do I get off of them? Because my kid expects it every night or feels better. So they're asking for it. And so another misconception we deal with is that they're only going to be able to eliminate with the enema. And that is not true. If your rectum is really dilated and you empty it with enemas every day, it will shrink. So then yeah. it will feel the urge to poop sooner and will empty better because overstretched muscles don't work well. What people do sometimes is they'll do the enemas, empty out the rectum, but it hasn't recovered yet. And then they'll wait to see if the kid poop and the kid doesn't poop for another day. And they're like, oh no, what happened? And the reality is not that they're dependent on enemas, but that you didn't give enough time for that rectum to actually fill. And maybe if you waited, obviously they would poop, but maybe it's not good to wait. Maybe if they're having accidents, you want it less dilated. So Right. And um, give it time for those neural connections to rebuild and exactly those and to be, signals and to, normalize. to back. Yeah. So we don't do none of what we do hurts their natural ability to poop. It actually helps it. There is a subset though, kids that will not do it. And therefore we offer, you know, oral laxatives and we do a lot more X-lax now, uh, stimulant laxatives than we used to do. There are several centers in the country that are, have bowel specific programs for kids that are born with congenital anomalies. Like some kids are born without an anus. They're born with other conditions like spina bifida, so they can't control their bowels. And they are treated with basically an enteral protocol, much like ours, but forever, right? Because they're never able to control their bowels. Mm -hmm. And so they get this protocol with large volume enemas, with stimulants or oral X-lax to keep their colon empty. We've kind of borrowed that in a temporary setting. So look, these programs work so good. We're going to use them, but you're going to be able to come off them because you weren't born with these problems, these kids that need them forever are. And so for safety purposes, I think it's reassuring for the parents to know that some kids are on these things forever. So my kid, if she's on it for a few months. Yeah, I think that that is reassuring. I also think I just wanted to circle back to the positive reinforcement thing. Something that I've used with some of my clients who are going through some of this is that once kids are feeling better and are having more success, it's more comfortable. Because I know for some kids who are holding it can be very uncomfortable to go actually videotaping themselves right after like filming a quick little like video where they're pep talking themselves. Like, you know, yeah. I went and it didn't hurt. I went and it was fine. And then when they're nervous and because the, there can be quite a lot of anxiety built up around this too, then showing them that video of themselves kind of giving themselves a pep talk has been helpful for parents. Funny because that echoes my own experience with, you know, not specifically, but one of my daughters just couldn't go and need an enema. And so I was like, here, look, we got to do this thing. And she was really not having it. And so it was very stressful, just like any of these parents to deal with it. And finally, I just kind of had to do it, you know. And, and so we do the enema, she poops and she looks at me and she goes, thank you, daddy. And so it was so funny. I was like, oh, and the funny thing is she was so 
thankful that she felt better. She got that poop out that we did it, but she still was like, but the next day, I'm not sure I need that again. You know, so it's still a head. Yeah. So it fits in with what you said. If she, she'd already forgotten that it was beneficial. So reminding them and can be helpful. Remind me of another topic that in terms of the X-lax, some kids, say you get their colon completely rehabilitated. They're, you've shrunk it down with enemas. They're doing great. The moment you start getting off this protocol, they start withholding again. It's so ingrained, right? We hope that this started because it hurt to poop early on before they knew any better. Now they're older. We teach them it doesn't hurt to poop. The poop is softer. They're on laxatives that they'll just kind of snap into it. Most kids do. They just do fine. But there's a small subset that if you just get off the enemas and keep them on something like Miralax, they will withhold again and the problems just come back. And those are the kids that need more stimulation. They need a high dose of X-lax to get such an urge that it's difficult to withhold, right? You almost got to break through their withholding behavior. Mm -hmm. Give them so much stimulus that they, something, again, flipping the switch in their brain that yeah. When I get the surge, I need to go poop. And that's what works better. Okay. Awesome. Oh my gosh. Dr. Hodges, this was so much good information. I really appreciate this time that you've spent with us. Everybody go check out the website, get his books if you need them and spread the word. <laughs> I know that folks I've sent to you, I see them now in parenting groups where they're like, make sure they're not constipated, check in on constipation. So you have your evangelists out there who are sending people to your site. And I hope that we just created a whole bunch more. That is so awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank yeah, you. absolutely. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Okay. So thanks for listening today. Um, remember to subscribe to the podcast. And if it was helpful, leave me a review that really helps others find the podcast and join us in this really important work of um, creating a parenthood that we don't have to escape from and creating a childhood for our kids that they don't have to recover from. And if you're listening, grab a screenshot and tag me on Instagram so that I can give you a shout out. Um, and definitely go follow me on Instagram. I'm at Laura Froyan PhD. Um, that's where you can get a behind the scenes look at what balanced conscious parenting looks like in action with my family. And plus I share a lot of other really great resources there too. All right. That's it for me today. I hope that you keep taking really good care of your kids and your family and each other. And most importantly of yourself. And just remember, balance is a verb and you're already doing it. You've got this. <laughs>